Welcome to the Boomlex Show, episode number four. This is Alex. Um, today we have uh, Josh Luber as a guest. He's a founder and CEO of StockX, a secondary sneaker marketplace. A very interesting business from the USA. They just received a Series B funding with uh, 44 million led by Battery Ventures. He's telling us on the stage why a business like um, StockX is able to exist um, and why it is better um, than eBay um, and why, and that was a very interesting quote, the concept of the retail price is dead. So it's quite an interesting business, not so known to the European listeners as the sneaker market or the secondary sneaker market is not as big as in the US. Um, but I'm pretty sure we will hear from uh, Josh in the future when he's, when he's expanding his business in the US. Um, so you will hear some background noise that's because we are live recording on the depth festival in amsterdam but the content is really really cool let's not keep you waiting any longer and bring on our first guest of this podcast series josh luber give it up hi josh how are you Very good. Thanks so much for taking the time to interview you about your great platform. This is, a, this is a standing uh, podcast? Yes. All right. Yeah. It's a standing <laughs> podcast. So we, we saw on your profile that you're um, actually an entrepreneur by heart. You were already selling chewing gum in high school. So you were an entrepreneur from a very young age. But then you ended up at Big Blue. So my question not is how did you become an entrepreneur, but how did you... Stopped being an entrepreneur um, for a little time in your uh, career. You ever By the way, how did you know about the chewing gum thing? There's a blog post out there where I got, uh, I was in sixth grade and um, they confiscated 132 packs of chewing gum from my locker in sixth grade because you're not allowed to be selling chewing gum in school. So I don't know. Oh. I, I, thought, I thought we, we uh, shut that one down, but if you found that, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> we used to sell chewing gum. You buy four packs for a dollar, and um, there were five packs, five pieces in a pack. And in sixth grade, the market price of chewing gum in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, was 25 cents a piece or a dollar a pack. So it was good. You can make five dollars off of uh, off of one dollar. It was good, good margins on chewing gum in sixth grade. So did your mm -hmm. um, experience with trading start there? And, and, and yeah, look, um, there's... Um, There's a guy, I don't know, does anyone uh, know who Gary Vaynerchuk is? Uh, Gary, so Gary's a pretty well-known entrepreneur and public speaker and all that. And, and the first time I ever met Gary uh, a couple years ago, he and I are about the same age. I'm 40, he's like 44. And, um, and the first thing he ever said to me was, Cole came in and he's like, candy or baseball cards? And I was like, both actually, right? For my generation in the States at that time, the hustle... For that age, it was first collecting baseball cards, which sort of teaches you the economics and uh, sort of basic economics and, and, and trading and, and deals. Um, and then it was selling candy in school. And those were just sort of natural hustles. Today, you know, later it became for, for kids of that age, after me, it was Pokemon cards. Or today, there's 14-year-old kids that are making apps for people, right? So it was just a different of, of that generation at that time. But... Um, Really, to get to, to your first uh, question, which is, it was super interesting, right? So I never in a million years thought that I would go and work for IBM, right? I had started and run two other startups before that at that time, and I'm a startup guy, and I'd shut down my last startup 
that that startup um, in the crash uh, in the United States. There was um, like the mortgage crash in 2008, 2009, and it created a recession. And I shut down my startup at the time there. And one of my former classmates from business school approached me and said, "Hey, I heard you shut down your company. You should come work with me at IBM." And I was like. I was like, bro, I was like, I don't think you get it. I was like, my company has four people. IBM is 400,000. Like, I'm good. Like, that's not for me. But one conversation led to another. And um, it was at a time where it was a tough job market. But it was also the opportunity to become and do strategy consulting work and do super high level, really interesting strategy consulting work without having to live like a consultant and be on the road 100% of the time. So I was able to move to New York City. That was... come. New York City and come work and do this job at IBM. And so, um, so I choose to do that. But if you're a startup guy and you go work at the whatever it is, second largest company in the world, the first thing you do is you start working on stuff on the side, right? <laughs> so from the day I got there, I was working on different um, side businesses. And what eventually became StockX was actually the second business that I was doing on the side at IBM. But it was a really good place to be able to do that, to be able to be exposed and do high-level business work, but um, have the, the time to come out and, and do stuff on the side. Because if you're an entrepreneur, you work every waking second on your business. But if you work at IBM, you still have some extra time to, to go do other stuff. So it worked out well. I would never be where I am now in this business and everything else if I hadn't gone to IBM. And then during your time at IBM, you uh, started to look at the different prices on eBay of Mm -hmm. Sneakers. Yeah. That so, was called Campus back in the days, right? Right, right. So um, I've collected sneakers all my life. I mean, I have the exact same story as every other, you know, 40-year-old sneakerhead in the United States, which is that, you know, I grew up playing basketball when Michael Jordan played. I always wanted Air Jordans. My mom would never buy me Air Jordans. As soon as I got some money, I bought Air Jordans. I mean, we all have the exact same story. And all of the businesses that I had started, I'd always intentionally separated business and pleasure. I'd never created any business around sneakers, almost intentionally so, almost like intentionally saying, listen, I don't want to create a business that's just an excuse to play with sneakers. Until I found a really good excuse to play with sneakers, or actually it was sneaker data. So what happened was, at IBM, as a consultant, I'm doing all this data work like any other consultant, and I very quickly went from, I thought I knew a lot about data, to now I know a lot about data, and... The thought was, well, I wonder if I could hold some sneaker data just to play with my own amusement, just to kind of see what I could do with it, because I was doing all this data work at IBM, and because I'd come home every night and be buying and selling sneakers on eBay. So at the time, and this is early 2012, eBay was still by far the largest sneaker marketplace, and, um, and there was this very just lack of transparency within eBay of what are things worth, what's real, what's fake, who do you buy it from? This is very, very, very muddy, muddy, messy place. So the idea in the beginning was simply, can we get a hold of eBay data? Can we scrape eBay data to create a price guide and just figure out what are sneakers actually worth? And that was the idea. And that, that's what Campus was, was a can, price guide based on eBay data. Can you elaborate a little bit more like for the listeners that are not sneaker hats? So what, what, what's it really, what it really is and how much money would you spend like per year mm -hmm. on like new sneakers or even used sneakers? I don't know if you're even buying used sneakers if they are like valuable? Both, right? Um, so in general, at its most basic level, um, the secondary market for sneakers can trace all the way back to 33 years to 1985, to the first Air Jordans. And the first time there was a product in this market, in the sneaker market, that there was less available than people wanted. So for just fundamentally, demand was greater than supply. 
and you had Air Jordans in 1985, and it led to craziness and people, you know, in a lot of times bad things, people robbing each other for sneakers or killing each other for sneakers. And in 1991, on the cover of Sports Illustrated, it said, you know, your sneakers in your life. And it was a picture of a gun and, and Air Jordans. What was the price for Air Jordans in 85? At the time. And so that was the first time that a pair of sneakers in the States crossed $100. And new, so new, new. So this is at retail price where you could buy it, which was crazy in 1980, in 1990, to have uh, a pair of sneakers that cost at retail $125. So fast forward of, of 30 years of just fundamentally people trying to acquire these shoes that everybody wanted, what developed was a very, frankly, sophisticated secondary market where people would buy something at retail and would turn around and sell it to someone else for more. Today, right, an average pair of, uh, of Adidas Yeezys is Kanye West shoe with Adidas, right, retails for $200. But because so many more people want that shoe than can buy it, because demand is so much higher than supply, that retails for $200, but that product is worth $1,000. The people can literally turn around and sell it to someone else for $1,000 because just it, this is just supply and demand. This is Econ 101 at its most basic. But, but, there's just one part I don't understand. I, 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 uh, um, I, I don't understand why those producers just don't produce more sneakers to fulfill the demand. So yeah. even like, like, I, I know when there's like a, a model, it's, it's, uh, it's becoming a classic, like in cars. You can't predict it when the car's new on the market, but then when it's become classic, like 20 years later or 30 years later. So I can understand this kind of mechanism that everybody wants to have like these 80, 85 Air Jordans or even 80, 86 Air Jordans, and there might be collections of people having like from 85 to I don't know uh, uh, how long it ranges. So why don't uh, the producers produce more sneakers to prevent like a secondary market? Yeah. Well, so first of all, demand is an unknown number. Nobody actually knows demand ahead of time. Supply is known. We choose, we're going to make, you know, we're going to make 100 of these widgets. We know what supply is. But demand is, it's an estimate, it's a formula, it's based on last year's sales. Yeah. It's, the, demand is an unknown number. So a lot of times they just get it wrong. But more than that, it is intentional. And it's not just sneakers, it's not just Air Jordans, it's not just, it's Yeezys. There are many, many different uh, businesses and industries that use scarcity as a marketing strategy, right? Uh, Louis Vuitton, Rolex, Rolls-Royce, right? Um, you know, Nike, Supreme. There's a lot of brands that intentionally produce more of something than people want because what happens is, right, if there's more of something Right? If there's more demand than available, that product, everyone will go crazy for it. Everyone is trying to buy it. So it guarantees a sellout at retail. It guarantees a sellout. And what it does is it's just marketing. Anytime you have people camped outside of, of a store for days trying to get your product or lines that stretch all the way around the block, that leads to, to stories about how crazy people are. The new iPhone comes out. People are camped out for days to get it. Right, That is marketing. And those companies leverage scarcity, and they leverage that difference between supply and demand, and they're willing to give up the additional sales they could get for marketing, okay, for got brand that. building. Got That's that. But just to understand, like the size of a market, can you like elaborate a little bit on this? So, how, how many uh, how many new sneakers are sold in the U.S. like per year, and what is like the secondary market uh, size to get like yeah. an understanding? Yeah. So, so today in the United States, the the secondary market for sneakers is probably just under two billion dollars. Right? Two billion, okay. right? And um, you know that's you know somewhere around 
Somewhere between probably 12 to 14 million pairs of shoes are resold in the United States every year. And that's a conservative number because most of that market, or at least a good chunk of that market, does not happen online, does not happen on marketplaces that's very easily quantifiable. You do have marketplaces like StockX. StockX is today the largest marketplace for sneakers, but there's many others. People still buy and sell on eBay. There's other marketplaces. There's sneaker shows where people are going out and you know, have conventions where people buy, or just at the store, right? Someone goes and waits in line and gets a pair of shoes and literally walks out the door and sells it to someone at the back of the line who couldn't get that. Right? So there's a lot of transactions that happen everywhere. So in the U.S., it's about a little under $2 billion. Globally, it's probably somewhere between 5 to $6 billion. Um, and then like, the big question that no one really knows is, like, how does China play into that, and, and what's that like? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a big number. But just, just for comparison, the global retail sneaker market is a little over $80 billion. Right? So it's still a small piece of the, the retail. It's like 5%. So it's like different like the watches, like the new watches, luxury uh, areas, like only a tiny bit of like the used watches uh, market, secondary market. May, maybe that, uh, that's becoming the same in the sneaker market. So and just from, from my understanding, so uh, Willem deep dive a little bit uh, into the market further. Uh, but from my understanding, what kind of problem... Uh, are, Problems are you solving with your with your StockX? Yeah, so so StockX is a consumer marketplace, right? So think an evolution of eBay. We are just a platform that connects buyers and sellers, right? We just connect buyers and sellers. But the method by how we connect buyers and sellers is the exact same way that the world's stock markets connect buyers and sellers. And there's a lot of nuance to that, and there's a lot of data that underpins it. But at the core, it's about understanding market price. Understanding the market value of a single pair of sneakers, right? If you want to sell a share of Nike stock, right, you don't go list it for sale and hope someone comes and buys it, right? You don't go, you know, ask, you know, hey, do you want to buy this for $50? No, like, there is a market price. You go to the stock exchange, there is a market price for what you can sell a share of Nike stock for. And same thing if you want to buy it. And that idea of everybody understanding what that market price is, that is just a more transparent and a more efficient way to buy or sell shares of stock. But, but, but don't you reach the same market price on, on eBay? So I, I'm not a, like a big believer in eBay because it's too big and uh, too, too much multi-product oriented. But if I put my Air Jordan from 1888... Uh, on the platform of eBay, I expect to reach kind of a fair price. So what, you, what is like the USP you're offering me with your platform? If you put a single pair of shoes on eBay, you may reach a price that you and that buyer agree on, but that is not necessarily the market price. And the, the best way to think about how a stock market works versus the eBay model and how StockX versus the eBay model is if you want to sell a, um, you know, if I'm a buyer and I'm looking for that pair of Jordan 1985, Where this pair of shoes, which came out two weeks ago. If I go to eBay right now and search for these shoes, you will get a thousand listings, two thousand listings, right? There are lots of people selling this. And you as a buyer decide, well, do I buy from that guy? Do I buy from that guy? You know, why is this person selling it for a hundred dollars? That guy for two hundred dollars? Why is, you know, how many reviews does this person have? How many sales does this person have? Why is there a cat in the picture? Yeah. Like all the different stuff of trying to understand which one do you buy. But if you want to buy a share of Nike stock, there's one ticker symbol for Nike stock. And every bid and ask happened at that same place. And there's one market price for Nike stock. You never worry about, well, should I buy that guy's Nike stock or that guy's? Or why is this guy selling Nike stock for $40 and that guy selling it for $60? No, there's a single market price. And the method, the way that we get to that market price 
is underpins how the market works, right? It's, it's what's called a, a, a bid-ask model, right? Buyers are placing bids, what they want to pay for something, and the sellers are placing asks, how much they want to sell it for. And by doing that at a single place, a one ticker symbol, right? One ticker symbol for Nike stock and everything comes at that same place, right? Then you can understand that market price. Everything happens there. It's like everyone's at one table talking about that asset versus at a thousand different tables and trying to figure out which one to go to. Okay, got it. So, but there's not only like the uh, bid ask uh, uh, mechanism on your platform. You're really selling them products over the platform, right? That's, That's right. how probably you make money out of the. Uh, you're, you're earning like a premium on top of the price. Uh, some, that's how I imagine how your platform yeah, just, works. Yeah, just like eBay and, and just like actually the stock market. You know, we take a, a percentage of the sale. And then, and then just to understand the market better, because it's, I'm not a sneakerhead uh, at all. I, I would not have a clue how, how much those sneakers cost. So maybe $200 uh, sure. retail. Uh, but in the stock market, usually you, you don't own, own the physical stock anymore. You buy like a, a Nike stock, and then there's another, another number in your bank account, so to say. There's yep. nobody printed like or sent the Nike stock, the original one, to your house. Is it the same happening in the sneaker market that you only own shares on a 90-85 so pair of sneakers? That is an a, a unbelievably fascinating and huge question. And the, the short answer today, right, the short answer today and what most of the people who use StockX for is no. It is not, a, it is not an asset that sits somewhere and you trade. You're physically getting it, right? We're just at, at a... A continuation, evolution of eBay, we're connecting buyers and sellers so that person that really does send that pair of shoes to you, right? Again, it's the method of using bid-ask model to get to the market price, but then once that sale happens, you're giving the cash to the seller and the seller is giving you those shoes. But 100% what happens in the future is that. 100% what happens in the future is people buy and sell sneakers and never take possession. In fact, it's one of the most commonly asked questions that we get at StockX is, is, hey, can I just have Nike send it to you direct? Can I have Adidas send it to you direct? So we physically authenticate every single product sold on StockX. After the sale happens, the seller sends it to us. We authenticate it. We make sure it's real. We make sure it's the right product. And we send it to the buyer. That's so you, part of your service then. That's right. And, and there's a ton of value in the authenticity. But one of the most asked questions is that... That, that seller has bought a pair of shoes at Nike. They're waiting for it to arrive at their house. They take it out of the Nike box, they put it into a StockX box, and they send it to us, right? Why do they ever need to touch it, right? Of course they should have Nike just be able to send it to us, right? That shoe is a commodity. There's no reason that person ever needs to touch it. But don't you get your joy as a sneakerhead for like having all the sneakers stuck in a closet at your home or like in a... In a on the big wall uh, in the entry hall at, of your home? At somewhere in that chain, somebody says, I would like to own those, please send them to me, right? At some, but be, before it reaches that, you just have people that are playing the market. And this, this is like oil futures, right? If you are buying and selling oil futures, there really are barrels of oil that sit in a warehouse somewhere that really are digitally assigned to you that you own them. The only difference is nobody ever takes possession of those. But if you don't close out your contract, they really will ship those barrels of oil to your house, right? Nobody does that. They keep trading the contract. The only difference here is at some point in the line, someone says, I would like to own those Yeezys. Please send them to me. So yeah, that, that's exactly what happens eventually because they are a consumer good. But before they reach that, a single pair of shoes could be sold three, four times before it gets in the hands of the person that actually wants to own it. Right. George, let's uh, zoom in back on your entrepreneurial 
start because I think there will be a lot of listeners who, like you, uh, are now a consultant with a brilliant business plan. Um, what I always learned as an entrepreneur, it's um, the idea must be great and your idea is, 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 is really awesome. You really differentiated yourself compared to, for example, eBay with uh, yeah, bringing the stock market to consumer goods. So the idea was obviously incredible. But how to execute that idea to a successful business? How did your journey look yeah. from that IBM desk to where you are today selling for two million a day in, uh, in consumer goods? Yeah, I mean, in an extreme, um, extreme way, I basically think that ideas are worthless, right? It's only about the uh, execution. And StockX is a perfect example of this, right? We didn't make this up. Like, the stock market has been the most efficient form of commerce for hundreds of years. And all we did was take it from pointing at these assets to those assets, right? From stocks and bonds and, and commodities to sneakers and streetwear and things. So the idea has been out there forever. We just happen to be the one that says we can try it here and we can try to actually make that happen. And in the beginning on day one, one of the biggest challenges we had to ourselves was can we build a consumer internet product that uses the mechanics of the stock market, that uses why it's good, why it's more efficient, why it's transparent, but make a product where I don't have to teach a 14-year-old kid how to use the stock market, right? Yeah. If I have to teach 14-year-old kids how to use the stock market, like, I'm probably in a lot of trouble, right? We think today that we've succeeded either because of or, or maybe in spite of the design and the, the user interface of what that product looks like, but for us, like, It is like in the weeds, like elbow grease at every part, right? We have 415 people that work at StockX today. We have a content marketing team that has 20 plus people on it. There's an affiliate marketing, there's performance marketing, there's SEO. Like, you know, it is like in the weeds of like, just like any other business of, of that, right? And, um, and we knew that from the beginning that, that it wasn't going to be, you can't just put it out there, that it was going to be about execution. And so... You know, and, and money, obviously. So how, how did you raise money? Uh, and, and how yeah. did you fund the company? So, um, so my co-founder in StockX uh, is a guy named Dan Gilbert. Uh, Dan is the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers and um, a company called Quicken Loans, which is the largest mortgage lender in the United States. Um, there's actually about 130 other companies that are part of the Quicken Loans family of companies. And um, the very, very short version of a crazy long story is that Essentially, Dan and I had the exact same idea independently, separately, I didn't know him, uh, to create a stock market for sneakers, to create a marketplace that uses stock market mechanics. And, um, and we were able to get together, uh, the company we talked about earlier, Campless, which was a price guide. Um, I ended up selling that company to Dan and becoming partners with him and turning that into StockX. So on day, day, day one, Dan is not only the co-founder, but was also our primary investor on day one uh, to build the, the company. But what's really great about this business versus some others is this is a cash business. Every time I sell a pair of sneakers, every time I sell a watch, right, we have cash that gets to offset some of the burn. So it's not like we're a social network or an eyeball business where, you know, it's 100% burn. So we have raised money. Dan's been the primary investor. We've been fortunate to bring on some very strategic high-name investors like Eminem and Mark Wahlberg and uh, some other professional uh, sports owners And, um, and then having Dan as the primary investor to be able to do that. But, you know, we do over $2 million a day in GMV. And, um, you know, we take about um, between 9% and 10% of that. 
So, you know, that helps offset the, the growth as well. But we're trying to spend more money. Like, we're in hyper-growth mode, trying to, to grow as fast as we can. Just, Are there just, any just, reasons where you want to grow? You're in, in Europe now, in, in, in the Netherlands? Yes. Yeah, so, is Europe an important target uh, yeah, yeah. continent? Um, Europe is, is literally the highest priority of the business right now. Um, so we're a website, so anyone in the world can buy or sell from StockX if they want. Um, but we are not local anywhere yet. Local currency, local language, local marketing, local customer service, local operations. And so um, we are gearing up. We are officially launching in, um, in Europe uh, the second week of October. And um, what that'll mean is, because again, anyone can buy or sell from, from every country in Europe today, is um, being able to lower shipping costs, being able to lower shipping time, uh, local currency, uh, local marketing, and then having an operations center in London where we can help to be able to, to move things quicker um, through there. And, um, and so that'll be the, it's really the, the highest priority of the business right now is to do that. And then we'll slowly do the same thing in, in Asia and other parts of the world. Um, but for a lot of reasons, you know, Europe was the first and, and it's part of the reason that, that I'm here now and starting to travel more to Europe than I did before. Yeah, I've, uh, I've uh, one, one question just to clarify. That I'm getting more and more questions as, uh, as, uh, when I'm hearing all the stuff you're saying because it's so interesting. Uh, but uh, one question just to clarify: you said like you're doing like two million dollars in GMV per day, and you're taking out like 10 percent more or less for your operations. Uh, that's better than most of the uh, online shops uh, in the Netherlands, uh, uh, probably. That's uh, that's impressive. Uh, that probably. Uh, won't, won't, uh, uh, it's not a problem for you like, to attract investors with these numbers. Right. Um, but uh, another question from the audience was uh, regarding like, the quality management process because like, you're comparing to the stock market, stocks are like virtual assets, more or less. Uh, um, the quality is always the same. Um, and when you're like, getting the shoes uh, uh, sent to your quality management center, so how often uh, then uh, have you, um, have you like, a stamp saying, okay, no, that's not the original one? Or like the quality is like minus 20% compared to what you said uh, you're offering. Can you elaborate a little bit on this uh, process? Sure. Yeah, so, um, so we have four operation centers. Um, one is in Detroit where we're headquartered, one's in Arizona, uh, one's in, outside of New York, and one's in London. And every product passes through operation center. We're checking first that the, sh that the product is authentic, that it's real, but also just that it's the right product. Um, a lot of times you might have a sneaker seller who's selling hundreds of shoes a week and he sold a nine and a half, but he sent us a nine, right? So you're just, you're checking to make, and make sure it's the right product. And also that it, that it's not used. So for sneakers and for streetwear, we only sell brand new unworn products, okay. right? Which helps a lot. If we had to, to judge the quality of sneakers, that's pretty hard because there's a lot of different ways that a sneaker can be worn. And then what we'd have to do is you'd probably have to have pictures of all the different sneakers. And that breaks the, the standardization yeah, model. Right. It so has to be standard. Where uh, 1985 Jordan sneakers? Uh, not, if you wanna, not if you want to resell them, right? Okay. But, you know... Look, that, that is the, the key is that we start with all we're doing is we're trying to standardize it. So we got to make sure it's real. We got to make sure the product is what it's supposed to be. And, but here's the thing. Because we authenticate, because we stand in the middle of the transaction, people are less likely to send us shoes that are fake. When we first started the company, the first like month, the fake rate was like 12, 13, 14%. And we're like, man, this business is never going to work if we have to cancel 14% of the transactions. What was happening was everyone was testing us. They were trying to figure it out. Today, the fake rate that we see is less than 2%. 
It's like one and a half percent because if you have a pair of fake sneakers and you want to scam somebody and you want to sell them, go sell it on eBay. Go sell it somewhere where they don't check. So most of the shoes that we see that are fake are people that they genuinely don't know they have a fake sneaker and we have to be the bearer of bad news to say, hey, listen, sorry, you know, and do that. That's so a, that's what we do. Uh, that's quite a clever pitch. So I, I, I try to remember this. So I've, uh, we're, we're a little bit limited in time, so, uh, but uh, I have a very uh, important question. So um, if this system is working so well for the sneaker market, which I never would have expected uh, is possible outside of an eBay or auction kind of uh, platform, Uh, can you gen, uh, then just transfer the business into other similar markets, like, like watches, for example, because there's so many new watches coming out, there's a big collector's market, even much bigger than the sneaker market, and like uh, 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 the bid and ask price is very, very volatile. If yep. you look at uh, Chrono24, which is like a popular business here uh-huh. in Europe, or Chronext, um, can't you just use your algorithms and your software to then uh, uh, overtake, overtake this markets too? 100%. Um, today we have four product categories. Sneak- Please, uh, sell eBay stock. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to come to that in a second. So today we have four product categories. Sneakers, streetwear, watches, and handbags. That's the businesses we're in today. Luxury handbag. Right? Yeah, yeah Louis Vuitton, you know, Birkin. Um, but it works. The, the model, the supply and demand, the bid-ask model of using the stock market mechanics works for almost anything that has finite supply. Anything that there's an open, like a question around the supply and demand, what is the real market value of this? And so we think this is generally a third and new form of commerce that does not exist. So today there's really two big models. There's the eBay model, right? And the eBay model will always be good for that long tail, one of one, that thing you want 30 pictures and a whole description for, right? And those fake sneaker sellers, of course. <laughs> and fa- yeah. Yes, and fake, good point, yeah. right? But for that, for that thing that's a unique one-of-a-kind item, There's no market for a one-of-one. One. There's no supply. There's no liquidity. So there, it's always better to have this, this eBay-type model. On the far other end, you have the Amazon-type model, which things that have infinite supply. So uh, toilet paper, right? Paper plates, cereal. They will make as much cereal as people will eat. There's no supply and demand question around cereal, right? But anything in the middle, which is almost all consumer goods, there's an open question on if there's only X number of these widgets, what is demand? What should market price be for these products? Watches are a perfect example, which is why we're in watches. But think about uh, collectible toys, uh, guitars, video games, you know, any, like your belt. There's a finite number of those belts in the world, right? The, whoever made the belt sells it for a retail price. But the reality is that the concept of retail price is antiquated, right? It should be, well, what are people willing to pay for this? Right? So for us, that's how we continue to grow is we'll continue to add other categories. And some of the obvious ones that we might go into next are like art prints, um, you know, street art, things like where you have you know, Cause and Banksy and, and all that. But I'll tell you what, right? I was, in a, I was giving a talk at Nike about a year ago. And there was about 300 people in the audience. And we get to the Q&A part of the talk. And there's a guy all the way in the back. And he's raising his hand. He really wants me to call on him. So I call on this guy first. And he says, I just want you to know When you expand to banjos, I'm your guy. I was like, okay, <laughs> right? Like, there it is. Like, we're not expanding to banjos anytime soon, but that was a perfect example of, like, you have some small collector community where there's probably a lack of transparency and where banjos, how many pairs are, how many are out there, and, but there's a lot of people that want them and they're worth money, and it could use the same type of model. And so that's where we sit. We sit right in the middle of eBay and Amazon, and we think that it's pretty big. 
I think well, what you said, it could be like a good title for the podcast, the concept of retail prices antiquated. And it's yeah. kind of true because if you look, at, go into like retail brick and mortar environment, there is no retail street price anymore. Apart from some luxury stores, it's all like minus 30%, minus 50%, summer sales, summer extra. So yeah. you, it, what you're saying is uh, somewhat true and yeah, everybody can, uh, every, everyone, everybody can see it. So uh, do you have like any, any additional question? I think we need to, uh, I, I, I would have like 10, such an impressive uh, impressive model and something you uh, wouldn't expect just by reading okay it's a stock exchange for sneakers then you're okay it's same for sneakers but if you're uh, uh, if, you, if we're learning now what is behind that it's like the the next eBay so I'd, I'd uh, like to buy stock on StockX uh, if it's uh, uh, available on the um, stock market <laughs> so, maybe, maybe sometime soon yeah. One thank last you a lot notes, uh, mm-hmm. um, if, if, when you gave a talk uh, here at the main stage in Circus, you said you had the original NBA ring of the Cleveland Cavs win. You have it with you? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, you can take it out and play with it. Yeah, so this is an actual <laughs> Cavs championship ring. So this is what LeBron James wore when he yeah, won so, the Yeah, so the, those aren't real diamonds. The one that LeBron gets are real diamonds. Um, but this is the actual ring. Like, if you worked in marketing for the Cavs, this yeah. is the organization ring. Uh, so the only way to get this is either through, if you work for the Cavs, yep. or through the, the release that we did, and where, where we had an IPO. We literally IPO'd sneakers, and we had a package that actually included the ring. And if you're like, do you carry the ring everywhere you go? Like, yeah, like I do. You can, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you carry it with yeah. you right now. Yeah. Wow, this is so, impressive. Yeah. Thanks so much, Josh. Yeah. Oh. Thanks so much for the talk as well. Thank you. We hope you liked this episode. Next guest will be Jordan Watson. He's the founder of the YouTube channel How to Dad. He's a very popular figure in the, um, let's say, internet entertainment industry. His Facebook channel is um, even much bigger. Um, he's also live recorded on the Debt um, Festival, but uh, I'm pretty sure you're going to enjoy it.